I really feel like we should have been talking about Taylor today. <laughs> not that I'm not going to enjoy the heck out of what we're going to talk about, but this whole, you know, we're showing it in theaters and it's making a lot of money. Uh, you know, the, 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 the concert film lover in me, the devotee of rattle and hum and stop making sense. I, I feel like I should have done a show about Taylor. No, I'm surprised that you didn't. I mean, there's also the, um, uh, the, the fact that it's, it's kind of self-distributed, right? Like she, she reached out to AMC, I, I guess, and got yeah. this major release in the States. So it's like breaking the studio system, doing it their own way, making a ton of money. And as we, I joked in the email to you last week, it's like, I didn't realize that the Taylor Swift movie came out last week and Killers of the Flower Moon was this week. I actually thought they were both coming out on the same day. And oh, I thought like, yeah, oh, yeah. awesome. I'm going to Barbie Heimer this thing. And yeah, I'm yeah. To them both, but then once I realized, like, no, no, they're they're giving her free, like, a whole free week with no competition. Like, oh, okay. Well, then actually, <laughs> yeah, I don't need to see. It's this a little one. different. Uh, still, would have been a fun show. Welcome back to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 313 of the Matinee Cast. It's a whole new season of the movie loving podcast of the movie loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home cinematic passion and perspective so how has your autumn been so far school going okay are you winning your football pool uh when you slipped on that fall coat did you find 20 bucks in the pocket whatever you're up to i hope it's going well for you as we get into these final 10 weeks of the year here on the matinee cast we're excited because there are a lot of cool things to talk about on the horizon there's a killer there's some american fiction there's a couple of poor things and even some superheroes that we'll need to discuss before the sun sets on 2023 I am really excited to be talking about them with you and for you and getting this new season of the podcast off with a bang. And it all begins today with a good friend, a great guest, a gent who is sadly no longer my neighbor after we both left the cozy confines of Midtown Toronto, but who I still get to argue with on the regular. Mike Lane is here. How are you, Mike Lane? Hey, I'm all right. I didn't know this was the season premiere. I feel special. I am Hello. late. This year, because I, I, you know, I took a trip and then there was Thanksgiving right afterwards. Right. So I'm usually back by now. This is a much later return for me. But yeah, uh, we're starting a whole new, whole new year of shows, and uh, I couldn't be uh, couldn't be happier. Yeah, yeah, very great. much. Um, on episode 313, we are going to be discussing Killers of the Flower Moon. We are going to be flipping the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Michael. This is Know Your Enemy. Mr. Lane first showed up on episode 106. We talked about Monuments Men. We learned the first film he'd ever seen in the theater was a triple feature at the drive-in of the Muppet movie, Arthur and E.T. The last film he'd seen at the time was Soldier of Orange. The worst film he's ever seen is Glenn or Glenda. The unseen classic or essential was On the Waterfront. Mike has since seen it. And the films he wished he made were Synecdoche, New York or The Fountain. Mike's questions then fell out of order. So round two was actually on appearance number three, episode 211. We talked about Roma. We learned the film 
Everybody else hates that Mike Diggs is the 1989 version of The Punisher. The, the film everybody else likes that he doesn't is Jurassic Park. The last film to make him cry was Synecdoche, New York. In the story of his life, he'd be played by Seth Rogen. And the film he was watching Gross. next was... <laughs> the film he was watching next was The House That Jack Built. Then we get to round three on episode 168. We talked about Kubo and the Two Strings. We learned the film that made Mike's love of cinema turn a corner was Pulp Fiction. His first date movie at the tender age of 10 was the animated version of Peter Pan. His sick day movie is Men at Work. The last film to leave him speechless was The Matrix. And his epitaph would be from Caddyshack. Hey, everybody, we're all going to get laid. <laughs> Finally, Mike returned on the last um, Scorsese film, The Irishman, episode 234. We learned the film he really digs but never wants to watch again actually does not exist. He always wants to go back to something, even if it really upsets him. The film that genuinely freaked him out was uh, a film called The Clairvoyant, and that was basically just based on its ads. The film that always makes him laugh is Tapeheads. His favorite movie soundtrack is Pulp Fiction, and the film he loves, but seemingly nobody else has heard of, also Tapeheads. So it's time for round five. Michael, you are a five-timer. Yikes. All right. When you go to the theater, where do you like to sit? By the time I was 20 and I started to pay attention more to framing, I wanted to sit further back to actually see the full frame and to see where oh. the where the walls end and, and you know what's fitting into the shape. These days... Uh, I, I take the path of least resistance if I'm seeing a movie with someone else. I'll happily sit where you want to sit. Um, because that's fine. But generally, if left to my own devices, I might go ninja style and, and try to just sort of hide in the back or to the side, uh, especially if it's a full theater where I'd be of less note. But these days, now that everyone's whipping out their phones and stuff in the screen and it's such a distraction, I actually am finding myself going back to Teenage Mike sitting a little closer than I would normally have chosen, but specifically for the reasoning of uh, uh, not wanting the person in front of me to whip out their phone. I think you're the first person to bring up wanting to soak up the framing. You know, as, as a photographer, I'm always fascinated by the framing because the framing is like super important. It's one of those things I kind of got on my little high horse earlier on this year. One of the AI companies decided to create uh, an AI version of masterpieces where they showed what was happening outside of the frame. So, you know, they, they showed like Mona Lisa and you can see more of the background and you can see more of her lower half. And they showed, okay. you know, the, 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 the you know, all of these kinds of things, including right. they actually showed the, the creation of Adam where, where, you know, a lot of people were scratching their heads going like, there is a lot more to that frame just because, you know, we mostly see this. It doesn't mean that there's not more that exists. And by the way, you got it wrong. Got up on my little soapbox and was talking about how much framing is integral to the art. You know, whether it's photography, whether it's cinema, whether it's painting, you name it. What happens outside of the screen does not matter, does not exist. It was chosen for a specific reason. So I, I find it fascinating that that was why you started moving back um, mm -hmm. because I've actually never really thought about that, but that is one of the reasons why I do like to sit back enough so that I can see the full frame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it might also be because I mean, to date myself when I was a teenager, it was the nineties and something about the nineties uh, that's probably forgotten by now was like everything was pan and scan everything was full frame everything oh, yeah. was a square box because you watched it on your television or whatever right. and 
it was only for me anyway, somewhere in the mid nineties where you started to realize, Oh, when they do letterboxing and it's got the black bars on the top and it makes it into a rectangle, that's actually closer to what it's like in the movie theater. Cause in the movie theater, the screen's a rectangle, not a square. It's like, Oh, I never noticed that. And then the acknowledgement of framing as something that's either right when it is shown letterboxed and, and in its proper dimensions versus wrong, something that's shown on TV or something on the videotape that you would rent, um, that probably also became just a little nudging factor of like, pay attention to how this is supposed to be composed. Um, I think, well, especially when I think. they were, especially when they were cutting shit out, right? Like the, uh, oh, in, in, you know, in the run up to uh, the killer is coming out here next week and it's dropping on Netflix in a few weeks in the run up to that. I found myself going back to David Fincher movies. And nice. the other night I was watching fight club for the first time in a God's age. <laughs> talk about a, Talk about a film that I once watched over and over, but now I watch next to never. Um, and I remember the first time, uh, you know, I had a video of it like many of us did. And I remember always wondering why, Tyler drives off in the car at the airport, but then you don't hear the, you don't see the guy running after him and yelling because it's not his car until like the very last second. <laughs> right, right. And it was because it's a, it's a wider shot and he runs into the shot so like so far over. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you move back and forth, but I think you are, you are the first person on this podcast to talk about framing. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's good. It's making me want to sit back a little bit further. So thank you for reminding me. <laughs> Mike, if you could go on a date with any movie character, who do you choose? Uh, over pandemic, I've really fallen into watching and rewatching the big sleep from 1946. Yes, um, man. Yeah. Uh, the Acme Bookstore Proprietist. Do you remember that scene? It's like <laughs> Humphrey Bogart is Philip Marlowe. He's trying to solve a mystery, but there's this one scene in the movie where he has to spy on the bookstore across the street. So he goes in to a different bookshop, ends up having a conversation with uh, Dorothy Malone from Peyton Place. It was one of her first movies. And She's just this side character. And the funny thing was, so I had seen this movie, whatever, 20 years ago. For some reason, its charms didn't work on me. I thought it was fine, but I'd forgotten most of it. When you I, were younger. Yeah. You were young and foolish. And when I rewatched it over pandemic, I had pretty much forgotten everywhere that the story is going to go. So when it got to that scene of him in the bookstore, I was just so amazed by the interplay between these two and, and just the, the warm feelings that I was getting. Like in the back of my brain, I'm like, is this where the movie goes? Is she involved in this story? And I've totally forgotten. Like, you know, my brain just went off on, on this must be an important part of the movie. It's not. It's just this one lovely scene where he meets a side character. They share a moment. They have a drink or two. And then he's got to get off on with the next uh, mystery. And she stays behind to work the bookstore. Um, Watching that makes my heart want so much more just out of that character, just out of that scene, just like, and the fact that it's from the 40s is like, oh, there will never be more. But, no. uh, but yeah, so I think just because of that, when I read that question, I was like, God, you know, it would be that. I mean, yes, of course, I suppose in this example that I'm also saying that I would like to be a Bogart, ha ha ha. But yeah, that <laughs> seems like a character that's like, that bookstore character would have a rich inner life. And she seems... She just seems real interested in people. That'd be a that'd be a real cool date to go. On. I love that the you know the the wonderful thing about Dorothy Malone as the book 
bookkeeper, bookshop owner, is that like many scholastic women of the age, she starts the scene in glasses oh, and eventually goodness. she takes them off, you know, to, to reveal, it's yeah. like, oh, I didn't realize okay. how pretty you were without your glasses on. So as a person that's worn glasses since he was seven, I don't like that trope. That it's no, it's a like. horrible trope. It is the stupidest she, trope in the whole world. She looks, and I mean, <laughs> she looks so beautiful with those glasses on. She does. Oh my God. But yes, it's like whatever. Uh, that's that's Bogart. That's of the age. It was yeah, a different yeah. time, right? They're, different they're not the mo- What I will say is they're not the most stylish glasses. That, that's the thing. They're these really thin rimmed things that are just doing her face no favors. But of course, she still looks like Dorothy Malone. So yeah. you know, her face does not need a whole lot of favors. It's kind of the similar trick that they play at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with Donna Reed. Is the, is the yeah, it's like, oh, shove these glasses on Donna Reed. That'll that'll make her look dowdy. Although, um, Don, or the Donna Reed looks dowdier in that moment than oh, yeah. Dorothy Parker. Yeah, because she's in this frumpy Dorothy hat, Dorothy this Dorothy big Malone. oversized coat. No, Dorothy Malone is killing it yeah, in yeah. this scene. She's got the, you know, this like polka dot necktie thing going. It's great. Uh, and I mean, listen, dude, you, you're, you're speaking my language because she owns a bookshop. And, you know, <laughs> I, I would certainly love to go on a date with a bookshop owner and, and just talk books for a while and <laughs> talk about that movie she was in uh, like this might be my favorite answer so far you're on a roll so try not to ruin it now mike what is the dirtiest film you have ever seen dirty still sounds like a judgy thing to me dirty still sounds like something that maybe you don't want oh it's like okay i thought pink flamingos that felt would like be a, an a absolutely acceptable answer to this question thing, it's like the whole point of that movie is to be the filthiest movie you've ever seen so i mean I it's like it's his whole it's his whole raison d'etre right no, is exactly. to bring so, dirty films into the mainstream so, so even to answer that would sort of be as dirty as like well yeah that was that was the point it's like so right. I, but so the one i'm going to go with because it is maybe the only movie i've seen in my life that i wish i hadn't watched <laughs> okay. um cannibal holocaust um the you know italian gore movie it, i i think i first became uh, uh, aware of it or interested in it back during the blair witch project days because people were like hey blair witch project's not as innovative as you think a different movie made the faux documentary we found these old film reels buried and are trying to make semblance of the story uh, right. idea back then. So it's like, all right, Hannibal, Cannibal Holocaust. Um, but it like, it actually has real animal deaths in it. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean like a hundred year old turtle getting pulled out of the water and disemboweled in front of you. And there is, I don't know, there is something existentially upsetting about seeing like this grand ancient creature uh, being murdered uh, essentially just for the purpose of, of adding a sense of quote realism to yeah. a crummy faux documentary, uh, uh, really sleazy, gory cannibal, the, uh, uh, movie. Um, yeah. it really, really left a bad taste. It's wild because as time goes on, a lot of those really grimy seventies films are becoming more and more upsetting. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, like good on them because that's kind of the point. Uh, but it's just, it, it, it feels like there's, um, you know, there, there's, there's a veneer between us and the film, the, this, like this, this 
curtain that we know what we're seeing is not real. And because so many of those films were shot so low budge and so slapdash, that veneer is not really there. And it feels like what we're seeing is real. Uh, I was watching, was it Last House on the Left? It was, it was too bleak. It was too grim. I'm like, this... This is too rapey. This is too it, low, but like, I'm it like, it certainly oh. was. Yeah. Like, I mean, in terms of even just, yeah, movies that I've seen, that is also maybe one of the more, uh, uh, haunting uses of yeah. real, uh, cruelty and real extreme brutality. And I'm not even thinking about anything that comes with the parent subplot yeah. of the story, just the, the opening, the, the girls being taken by the psychopaths and, and tortured and murdered is is just absolutely. But now this was also me seeing it when I was sixteen or seventeen, and I. Oh, it's, not I mean, it's actually, not. It's not improving. It is still. No. It is. That's the thing. It is actually still. It's. It's fading now as we get older, and our sense of empathy grows. Yeah. You know, with more life experience, it's actually worse. No, but I think. You've actually tipped on like something interesting when I when I asked this question because I think like the difference between like a sexy movie and a dirty movie is like you walk away feeling unsettled. You walk away feeling gross. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with sex itself. Yeah. It can do with you know, this feel this film feels in a lot of ways very exploitative. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that, yeah, that sort of Andy Milligan kind of uh, yeah. uh, thing that, that feels there. Yeah, definitely. The possibly the broadest question that I ask my guests of all, Michael Lane, what is your favorite black and white film? Also, in the pandemic, I've really fallen into an Orson Welles-sized hole, and so weren't you uh, the, always there? I feel like you've been there since I met you. I, you know what, I, I, I always liked Orson Welles. I always admired Orson Welles. I back then had probably seen I don't know how many movies he's made. He made like seven or eight. I had probably seen like three or four. Gotcha. Um, but over pandemic, it's like I watched every Wells movie. I watched every alternate version of every Wells movie to compare them. I read every screenplay so that I could compare the screenplays with every alternate version. I read every unproduced screenplay that he did just so I could fantasize about it. It's that sort of stuff. So when I saw the thing, favorite black and white movie, it's like, I guess that has to be Citizen Kane because Citizen Kane is really maybe more than ever before truly enshrined in my uh, brain as uh, the greatest movie of all time or one of the greatest movies of all time. And then if I was to really nail on the black and white part, the, the photographic end of it, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, Greg Toland and all of those shots, like, like Citizen Kane is the moment that classic cinema became modern. Like when right. they started doing everything fresh and new and the story always was because, uh, I guess when Toland wanted to work as a cameraman on the movie or a cinematographer on the movie, he approached Orson Welles and said, "Like I want to work with you." And basically, because Orson Welles had never done a movie before, he was suggesting crazy things that no one had not or no one had done. And Toland just kind of went with it. And as a result, you have this dazzlingly original movie. Like you can see Hollywood pre Citizen Kane and after it. Like that step into modernity is what changed everything. So. Um, yeah. I kind of have to stick with that, I think. I, I mean, I don't disagree. Uh, I think, you know, people know that I'm a fan of that movie. And I, I'm not just a fan of that movie because I'm supposed to be as a cinephile and a critic. You know, I'm, I'm a fan of that movie because I find it so very, very interesting in terms of writing, in terms of photography, in terms of editing. Like, it's, Absolutely it's, everything. Just, it's just so fascinating. And like, yeah, you know, from strictly an imagery perspective there's things going on in that movie that 
you don't catch unless you're really kind of paying attention. Like I'm even thinking about how, um, you know, there's that shot that the parents and the benefactor are talking and Charlie's off in the distance in the window, like playing oh, out yeah. in the snow, like stuff like that. I'm like, that's a hard shot. And you don't get that kind of shot happening in a lot of modern films. You certainly didn't get it happening in films in the forties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before like in the thirties, before uh, Wells comes along in 41 and says, let's do this and use this to really drive home our point, you know, or, um, framing the shot just so that you think that the windows are normal windows until you watch Kane walk towards them and get smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's like, Oh shit, those windows are huge, you know, and it's, and it's really dwarfing this guy. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you that that film as a example of black and white filmmaking, I think it needs to be one of those, you know, start of the textbook type yeah. films along with, you know, movies like, um, you know, Night of the Hunter and those kind and those kinds of films strictly because it's doing so many things that, yeah. Okay. Now they seem like they're commonplace, but at the time they were not and seem so simple until you realize, you know, with the confines of what a camera lens can do, they're actually really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, uh, uh, David Bordwell and Kristen Thompson, they, they have their film art introduction, uh, book, uh, which okay. I think that most film schools have make everyone read, but, uh, uh, the pretty much the only example they use for the entirety of the book is Citizen Kane, because it's just like, look, it, this has to be. Okay. See, that's but, cheating though. But, <laughs> I mean, listen, it's, it's fantastic, but it can't be the alpha and omega of your whole conversation. Yeah, so, be. all right. <laughs> <laughs> It can and will, Ryan. Uh, all right. Last but not least for now, uh, Mike Lane, what is a film you like that nobody would expect you to like? Well, okay. You know what? Here's a story. So this doesn't actually really fit for me anymore, but it, it will. Cause it was like when I worked at a video store, um, uh, this was a blockbuster, unfortunately, but it was right around the time when blockbusters started to phase out their employee pick shelves you go used to go to a video store and there'd be a shelf attributed to like oh this is dave's picks and you could see all the movies that dave liked now i was also coming to work at this store after all the other shelves were full with other cool employees who had picked all the big movies you know maybe you wanted reservoir dogs on your shelf well sorry someone else already has reservoir dogs (laughs) well maybe you want killing zoe on your shelf well sorry someone cooler than you has killing zoe like so having to pick the five or six movies that filled that shelf, but also from the perspective of, well, this is going to represent me in front of these, these patrons. Um, at the time, the one that I put on there that seemed to me like, oh, here's the thing I'm going to put on here and it's going to just melt everyone's mind because you just don't do that. Right. Uh, among my picks, I had The Little Mermaid, the Disney Little Mermaid. And why okay, no yeah, that, I... I I wouldn't expect that. But it's like, it's animated. I love animated stuff. Little Mermaid was a legitimately very good movie, at least at the time. And this also would have been like, let's say, Still 1999. Is. So I recently rewatched Little Mermaid. I don't have the fondness for it anymore. Oh, no. Because it's all about her learning to like follow her dad's orders in the first place. Or in the first place. It's like, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Our okay, our so yeah, our modern pers- our modern perspective that she wants to drop everything that makes her yeah. her for a boy who also, she hasn't met. That's not aging very well. Also, admittedly, when it was like, which character would you go on a date on? I tend to just think of movies where characters go on dates, and instantly I'm like, 
Little Mermaid. I could answer Little Mermaid. And it's like, but wait a second. She can't talk. She can't talk. She's just, she's just <laughs> absolutely beautiful, Mike. Like, this would be a terrible answer for you to say. It's, I want to have dinner with a pretty redhead that doesn't talk. Right. Like, oh. You know, I like, I mean, yeah. That, I mean, like, lest we forget, it's a fairy tale. If I remember correct, and I like to think that I do, the Disney version of the fairy tale is not as dark as the Hans Christian Andersen yes. original, because they're yeah. usually not. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, we don't always necessarily fly our flag of, I loved this classic animated film, unless it's something cool, like, you know, Sleeping Beauty or something like that. So, you know, yeah, saying, you know, I really loved The Little Mermaid when I was younger. I mean, I, I think, I remember seeing it in a theater, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, you know, you know, which is not the kind of thing that you necessarily expect, a. 10 year old boy to do um you know i think that disney at the time was really putting out those princess movies to to appeal yeah. the girls i mean they weren't cross-promoting yeah even if it wasn't princess movies like i definitely i definitely remember feeling like when i would get taken to a disney movie not necessarily feeling like boys shouldn't be here but i definitely felt like I think I'm too old for this. I think I'm oh, too yeah. cool to be sitting yeah. in this room with all these seven-year-olds that are waiting for Aladdin oh, to yeah. start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you know what? You're delighted by Aladdin. All right, there we go. That's a lot about Mike. We'll learn even more about him That's when he inevitably comes back. Uh, you know, we'll try not to make it three years this time. Um, okay. We have, uh, we've got a humdinger of a movie to talk about. I should also point out that when we discuss uh, Killers of the Flower Moon on the new slang uh, for this episode, we will get a little bit spoilerish. We're not really going to give the whole game away, but we are going to talk about things that happen towards the end of the film. So if you do want to go see it completely blind, I mean, I don't know why you're here, but if you do want to go see it completely blind, be warned. We'll kind of wave a flag when we're going to talk about the end of the movie, but um, it will be a little bit more spoiler heavy than the type of podcast we normally do. It's the new slang. The new slang will be Killers of the Flower Moon right after this. Killers of the Flower Moon is directed by Martin Scorsese. It's written by Scorsese with Eric Roth. It stars Lily Gladstone, Leo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, Jesse Plemons, Jason Isbell, and many more. Killers of the Flower Moon takes us back to America of the 1920s, to Fairfax, Oklahoma, where the Osage Nation has been relocated by the powers that be and found themselves now on oil-rich territory. This brings the native peoples incredible prosperity, and as the old saying goes, wherever there is money, there is crime. In this case, the crime is that of the white population of Fairfax finding ways to reclaim the titles of the county lands and the wealth that comes with. For Exhibit A, we look at Ernest Burkhart, that's Leo, a recently returned soldier trying to resettle in America and looking to his uncle, William King Hale, that's De Niro, for help. As it happens, Burkhart gets a huge assist in settling in nicely when he meets and falls in love with an Osage woman named Molly, that's Gladstone. He's able to sponge off her titles and wealth and make himself quite comfortable. Still, all around them, Osage people are dying, quite suddenly, quite suspiciously, and no one seems to want to do anything about it. Not Ernest, not William, not any of the other white settlers who stand to profit from another dead native. So it goes, until the newly formed Federal Bureau of Investigation comes knocking. 
and when we all learn how deep the river of insidiousness runs amongst the white population of Fairfax, Oklahoma. Masterpiece is a word that gets lobbed around a lot these days. Sometimes it comes when a new work is released from a true master, and make no mistake, Scorsese is an absolute master. Sometimes it comes when a singular piece of art arrives and just astonishes with its deftness of technique and execution. Martin Scorsese has given audiences multiple masterpieces over his career, from Raging Pole to Goodfellas to Taxi Driver. On more than one occasion, the man has astonished with a complete work that is flawless in intent and execution. Now, upon the release of this latest film, and coming up on 60 years of making movies, the word masterpiece is being lobbed around again in association with Martin Scorsese's latest work. So, pop quiz hotshot, quite simply. Is this film a masterpiece? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> he says with yeah, a... No, yeah, all right, sure. No, yeah, masterpiece. All right, no, gold like, star. I mean, you know, sometimes you want to see a movie a second time before you make such rash uh, proclamations. But yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was riveted and engrossed for the entirety. And, uh, and I mean, when you're talking about whatever that movie was, three hours and 35 and minutes, something like that. Yep. To be as absorbed and and taken away as uh, as I was, it's like yeah, no, that was um, that was excellent. Just to even look at the word masterpiece is like you know the, yes, the product of a particular master, um, which we will get into I think later. But that ending, that ending, feels like a not a signature statement, meaning something that Scorsese normally does, but a a signature statement of. Um, him taking authorship and responsibility almost for the story that he has told here and the stories that he has told throughout his career. It, it, it felt that little tiny self-referential or self-reflexive part of it right at the end, I, I think gave it that extra little stamp of Interesting. Um, here's something. Yeah. Uh, something a little different, okay. but I, do not think this film is a masterpiece. Okay. Um, I and you know we'll get into our, our broad reactions in just a second here, but I think for uh, for a few reasons. I think one because whenever you are talking about an artist's master works, they're at a certain point they're competing against themselves. Well, that's true okay. too, right? You know, He's made I think what twenty seven, twenty eight movies, and if right. you have to put a top ten, it's like well. There's already ten that are amazing. Yeah, so like, like and that's the thing. Like, awesome. It's still going to be number eleven. That's right. There's so, so so there's that there's that for starters, and you know the film the films that I mentioned in the earlier part of the the in my introduction, um, you know, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas. I'm like these are films that I consider without flaw, and this yeah. is a film in which I can find flaw. Sure, and sure. that is the, you know your art. It, like when you're competing against yourself you know, in terms of where you were at an artist, you know, how far did you move the needle? What did you change? What does this film state? Um, you know, all of that needs to be taken into work, not just like opening the curtain and gasp, it's a masterpiece. So this film is, and, and, and I've, I've gone on about this. I wrote about masterpieces years and years ago. Um, when I think it was being lobbed around about boyhood, which I said, no, it's mm. not. And I still stand by the, no, it's not incredible film. But I just, I believe that when it comes to that, you know, words matter. And that is a word that is very, that comes with a lot of context and both in the context of the art form and the context of the artist. I don't think that it applies to this, but 
that said, what did you think of uh, Killers of the Flower Moon? Uh, oh, well, you said it is a masterpiece, yes. so please, please That's explain. Right. <laughs> I was really taken away by it. Um, the, I mean, the what seems to be the the topic of conversation these days is that this movie, in its adaptation away from its source material, has removed what I guess many uh, thought, or what actually was the driving force of the book. It was the the history of the creation of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It was following the investigators as they uncovered the source of this crime. They made the decision to not do that and right. to instead focus entirely on this small family and, and the people that are involved just to, to steer it away from uh, uh, that sort of outward perspective of the book. And in doing so, uh, I thought that it, it did more than any other movie that I've seen lately uh, uh, feel that or create that feeling of being contained in a house, in a family, in a, in a smaller um, uh, group away from outside currents of the world that are going on. I'm thinking even there's a, a, a moment involving a, an explosion in this movie, mm -hmm. um, a bomb going off. Uh, you're not expecting it necessarily and it just kind of goes off, but um that this bombing, this big moment is played out uh, fully, I would say, in the interiors. Uh, you're in the house of a, of a different character when this explosion goes off. You yeah. experience it in the distance of them. In, their, it. in, their, bedroom, in their bedroom, too. Like, you're, you're really in this, uh, this supposedly safe space. Yeah. You know, and then, and then yeah, the, it, 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 you know, violence crashes into this safe space. It's like, you know, it's, it's very much like The Godfather 2, you know, where, where the assassination takes place in Michael Corleone's bedroom. Yeah, and then they recede back into the safe space, uh, to deal with it. In fact, I think it's the first scene right after that explosion. It's this uh, tracking shot moving through the house and kind of scanning empty room to empty room as it's moving through, like like the the prison that it seems to create um, for these uh, for these people that are that are trapped. I guess also because the the families or the familial type power dynamics is something that that. Uh, Scorsese's done in, in other films as well that it felt like oh oh yes of course you would you would take this but it is like a crime family it is like a a, a mob a mafia in its own way like um, the way in which these are just people not following orders but kind of just following orders kind of dopey people in a in a crime um, getting themselves into a crime situation they don't quite understand. I'm in the middle on this. Uh, like, I mean, to be clear, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, but, well, I mean, just that. I enjoyed it, but. Hmm. You know, like, that that's the thing I keep coming back to over and over and over is there are, there are lots of things about it I love and lots of things about it where I was really very much engaged and very... Um, engrossed with the point of view or the way that the the film instills upon us the the, the tragedy or the terror or the just the the helplessness right out of the gate even when molly goes down this list of deaths and just punctuates each death with no investigation no investigation because of course they're they're native deaths and at the time america was just like eh, yeah that happens um you know like those moments i found myself really wrapped 
Um, however, the movie often does a lot of talking without showing. Like, it is a very, very talky movie. The script is supposed to be incredibly long, and I can see how that actually happened. Um, and they pull the Game of Thrones trick where they lob a lot of names around, and I'm like, wait, which one was he? Um, you know, because they're all white names, they're all men's names, and I'm like, I don't have enough distinction between right. all of these white townspeople that you can just say, oh, give this job to Joe Black. And I'm like, which one was Joe Black? I, I'd never say that it was a slog because I don't think feel like that's fair. But there were times where I was kind of really pushing myself to keep going with it because I'm like, you're starting to lose me. It will get better upon rewatches and I'll know who's who and I'll be able to focus more on those moments of technique that I loved and less on trying to keep up. And I say this as somebody who's read the book. It's a really good movie that could have been a great movie. You know, I want to start with Leo. You know, we're, we're many years into Leo's career. We've watched him since he was a kid. He's playing different kinds of characters now. Um, it, it was a weird um, contradiction for me in watching him in this movie. Because on the one hand, I actually really do feel like his acting is improving as he gets older. He's trying different things um you know this movie is not afraid to let him look you know what is he now i think he's late 40s um he might even be 50 but i mean he's like it's it's letting him look his age it's not trying to make him look like this boyish gatsby-esque character um but all the same he kind of feels miscast in this movie um burkhart is supposed to be just back from a war and i'm sorry no late 40s person is a soldier right back certainly not <laughs> as a cook comes back from world war one well it's uh, yeah that that's true and, and i suppose that requires maybe some some degree of uh a willingness to go along with it that's well, a lot of willingness well, to go along with it when i went and looked up the real life people that this movie happened to the real um, Ernest Burkhart. Uh, I, I mean, I actually don't know the date of the photograph, but it's like he was in his twenties when all this was going down, and he yeah. looks like a fifty-year-old man because well, there's of, the, you know that. <laughs> that's so I mean like, that that's oh. that's the style, right? Like we look at we look at a lot of these movies, and and well, you know like hard uh, lives, from, man. Well, not hard lives, but they're also. I mean, they're they're dressed in suits for kicks. They're, you know, like nowadays you dress preservatives. That's why we look like babies. <laughs> but yeah, like I mean, that that's the thing. He's acting much better these days. Like I, I just I feel yeah, like his yeah. his own craft is just improving as time goes on, and it seems like I think Scorsese actually really seems to bring out the best in him. Because when I think about his roles, I'm like, you really get a kind of a different layer of Leo when he works with Scorsese than you do when, you know, he works with some of the other directors that he works with. While I did love watching him play off of De Niro and play off of Lily Gladstone and, you know, really immerse himself in the, in the chemistry of those scenes. I don't necessarily feel like he was the right actor for this role. Mm. I mean, he was an unlikable character yeah. oh yeah and, he did and that. everything about that and and true i mean if i was because we saw it on the imax as well right when i'm mm -hmm. staring at that gigantic screen and you can see every nuance of a person's face then yeah maybe you do start to notice the the little things that he's doing with his jaw or with his mouth that the moment you start to realize them you realize oh these are just acting techniques that's not a natural thing but yeah. um but you know but when you're not noticing it then that's when you hope that someone's going to 
uh, vanish away uh, into the role. Now, the the other interesting thing about this movie, which has been coming out in um, recent publicity, is I think in keeping with with your uh, feelings about uh, DiCaprio and his role. When they first went into pre-production on this movie and they were working on the script, it was going to be from the FBI's perspective. It was going to have Tom White, the Jesse Plemons character, as the main character of the movie. He was not going to be Jesse Plemons. He was going to be DiCaprio. Like, that was the whole idea. Oh. Hey, let's make this DiCaprio movie where he's... And somewhere along the way, I, I think... Scorsese is saying that it was DiCaprio who did it, but somewhere was like, hey, you know, maybe instead of being an FBI agent, uh, uh, maybe See, it's more interesting that. if I... Well, exactly. And so when they made that shift, let's not make it about the FBI, let's make it about this this podunk, you know, rube, um, Paramount dropped out. Um, so suddenly no one's making this movie. And then it wasn't until Apple came in and was like, we'll give you $200 million, Marty. But then Paramount was like, oh, well, since someone's making it now, we'll release it in the theaters. Can we, can we please? Um, right. They scrapped it when they made that choice to be like, well, no, this wow. isn't going to be about FBI agent DiCaprio. Oh, well, we don't want that. Uh, we kind of just want that. Um, Interesting. No, so, I, yeah, I totally, I, I totally would have bought him as the FBI agent, and you know, cast somebody else as That's um, Jesse Plemons. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, even Plemons is a little too old for it now. But I mean, because because well, that's you're the thing. Still stuck like, on the age. Because he again, like we, you know, like part of, that's part of the tragedy of soldiers is ninety nine times out of a hundred they're kids. Yeah. Right. I mean, like an old soldier is in his early thirties. Leo is. 50 you know even Clemens <laughs> is in his 40s it's like get and, and i mean the other thing too is if you had a younger actor in that part it becomes that much more insidious well yeah it's almost ghoulish actually yeah like, and that's the thing is like it would i feel like i mean this movie is vile in terms of and and rightfully so because these acts that you know that that white people took part in through history were and are vile but that's the thing is i think to really drive it home you have to say like look here is a very clean cut looking white boy who you would have no problem if your daughter brought him home for a date oh, or he was you know he showed up with your grocery delivery but oh by the way he's absolutely the devil and will kill people to get himself ahead i'm like you need somebody who is young and seemingly harmless to really drive that point home of this, this is absolute evil you know and I, that's the thing like leo he still looks boyish and you know he's still you know to to use the character's words handsome devil but it's like also he's a 50 year old man now and i totally believe a 50 year old man would do this um <laughs> the flip of this is lily gladstone who holy sweet jesus in this movie is incredible um, you know, one of the flaws that I can pick in this movie is I sure moving it from the FBI's perspective to Burkhardt's perspective is good. Moving it from the FBI's perspective to Molly's perspective would have been great. Mm. Uh, and that's the thing for me is because from moment to moment, you can really tell that she is taking in and seeing and observing so much. You know, like the the way she talks to her sisters, the way she talks to Burkhart, she is 
very observant and very, very confident in, in everything that's going on around her. The contradiction, of course, is the government considers her incompetent. Um, that she has to declare every time she wants to take money that she herself is entitled to as a native of that land and a landholder. Gladstone in this movie, she just, she, her performance is so coiled. She's never, she really only lets loose during one or two moments of extreme grief. For the most part, she's really wearing a lot on a very tight expression and a very stiff posture. That's not, stiff as in she's wooden it's like stiff as in she is very very in control of who she is and how she presents and what she soaks in it's that is yeah, amazing she's Gosh. dignified i'm inclined to disagree with the suggestion that it should have been about her or that the perspective should have been on her just because not should have could have could have oh no definitely could have but it's like because if that were the circumstance, like if if she were our main character, we were going through that, then I think this would have to be a movie about punishing your audience, right? Because you would be wanting to put the audience through these horrors that she's going through so that they subjectively um, appreciate or understand them, as opposed to by making it not her story and the story of the murderers, um, I think that forces an implication that the audience has to deal with their own complicitness uh, because it's like, these are your main characters, suck it up! And and uh, yeah, like if that wasn't there and if it was just a, here's some real horrible shit that happened and let's put you through these paces as though you're actually experiencing them, like that would be its own experience but it 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 wouldn't it wouldn't make you feel that you were involved in these historical brutalities it would make you feel like oh that's something i didn't have to go through what about that like i i, I think that might be a you know the new but i mean there. That, but i think but that's but that's the point is you know this film this film wants to shine a light on where we were and what we did, you know, not we necessarily the audience, but you know, the, our, uh, you know, our forefathers, whether you're American or Canadian or European or whatever, if, you know, if you're white, your family did this, it does want to make us feel terrible and complicit and drag us through the mud, rightfully so. But by keeping it away from Molly, by only coming back to Molly when it's like, we really need to remind you who is really getting affected by this, you know, because uh, it's mo it's mostly just contained to Molly's family, um, you know, to her sisters, to her mother. Those are the victims that we stay with over the course of this movie. Um, you know, we don't get into the larger murders of the Osage nation because, I mean, we just don't have time. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the thing is I, I, don't feel like we gave Molly enough. Don't get me wrong. That's a very different movie, you know, and maybe that movie actually needs a different storyteller included. But I found myself wondering that that was actually something that was brought up earlier this week by, um, by one of the, um, by, by a native person who was on like the red carpet for the premiere. He said, you know, he actually said, I, I would, I would want to see this, this story told again um, from Molly's perspective and, and give her more of a voice. I think mm. that's the thing is like, I'm not saying that like, this is not like, you know, when we talk about the Irishman, I talked about how 
<laughs> how um, Anna Paquin really has nothing to do oh, that's right. in that yeah, movie yeah, except yeah, yeah. eat ice cream and then have one scene of asking her grandfather what he did. Um, you know, this is not that. This is just you went six steps down the road when if you went ten, especially with this artist, um, who is so very good. And I really hope that this is just a launching pad to see her in more stuff. Um, you know, it could have been something really special. I will be the one to say it. This movie is too long. I didn't feel it, but I I get it. No. And I I, I went and I I was looking at some of the other criticism online just last night after having seen it. And, and yeah, that the general response seems to be, you know, not too long, but over long or that sort of thing. I did not even notice it. Uh, uh, when it ended, I kind of thought there was still going to be more and it was like, Oh, it's been three and a half hours. Uh, it was a world for me, but, but I was lucky, I guess. I, I mean, I went along with it because I'm a person who can go along with, uh, you know, epic films, you know, I'll, I'm the guy who will throw on a Frederick Wiseman documentary for fun. I, I noticed it when it came to, getting in and out of scenes i i I, like i just noticed just a little bit of indulgence and i'm like there was a more economical way either in script or in cut to do what you just did i understand that scorsese loves to tell longer films always has always will it's just the pace of his movies is usually much more brisk even i mean breakneck yeah yeah. Or if he's going to go long, he goes very deliberate. Like, and I'm thinking of a movie I adore, like Silence. Silence is long. Silence is like three oh. hours. Silence is very, very atmospheric, very, you know, stretch out these scenes of water and fire and prayer. And, you know, it's trying to really, really, really explore how uh, institutional these killings were, you know, how many people stood to profit from them, uh, you know, what kind of shift in the, in the history of this area of America, there would be in America on the whole, there would be, if it all came to fruition and spoiler alert, it does. Um, but I just feel like at every stage there was a more economical way to do it. Mm. And you're an editor. And the thing is you're an editor and I'm not saying, I'm not saying just rip shit out. You know, I'm not like every, every story be in the film needed to be there. I just feel like there was a better way to do it. Maybe. I mean, I, yeah, like uh, as an editor, you know, when I'm watching stuff, I, I, I try to sink my, I try to sink my heartbeat with the movie's heartbeat when I'm starting. Oh, that's uh, lovely. And, I'm going to write that down. That's lovely. Yeah. And so, so the heartbeat of that movie felt correct. It never felt, cause yeah, like something like silence, the heartbeat felt slow. And it felt slow because it wanted you to realize you're watching a slightly slower movie here, uh, which as opposed to some and and something like a Wolf of Wall Street or or a Goodfellas, like these yeah. these crazy pregnant ones, like like that's a real fast heartbeat, and you're just right. you're just rolling with it. Um, this one never felt slow, though it definitely did seem like you know, hey, a, a different movie. We maybe would have cut seven or eight times by now, but instead we're just lingering on this shot. But not even lingering. That that makes it sound long. Like, no, we're just kind of staying on this shot for like 30 seconds. And I guess because I know uh, Scorsese's such a, a cineast and a, and a film history kind of guy, and often when you do look at his movies, you can see that, not maybe, maybe a direct reference, but like, oh, uh, 
Uh, Shutter Island was his Val Luton movie. Uh, the Departed was his Sam Fuller movie. This, not to suggest this has John Ford kind of tendencies, but, you know, this did seem clearly to me as I was watching it, this is his Western. This is his frontier movie. This is his, his John Ford reckoning with the past of the nation kind of thing. And so when you've considered it like that or as a Western, then I was not missing the restless pace of it. I was appreciating that it's like, okay, everything's still moving, but, but yeah, maybe, maybe things sure. are just a little tiny bit slower. But Westerns have a pace of their own. They have an inciting incident, a long, slow incline, a crisis at the end, and then a quick fall off. This doesn't have that. So, you know, the way I, I like your heartbeat analogy and the way that I can think of this movie is, you know, those songs that are kind of hard to dance to, they're not fast songs and they're not slow songs. They're kind of in the middle songs. Yeah. So you don't really don't that's cry this, by guns and roses. Yeah. That's what this movie is. It's a song. That's not a fast song and it's not a slow song. So I don't know if I'm supposed to be jumping up and down or swaying with my lady, but I, uh, uh, you know, it's a pretty song, but I just, I, I can't, Get with the tempo. Um, you know, okay, back to something that's good, though. Welcome back to the game, Robert De Niro. Um, the deviousness of this character, just in, in every way that you can think of, really gets into the devilishness of a person who outwardly shows as though they are an ally, but inside it's like, I'm really just looking out for me. It's stunning to watch because... He's, I mean, he's acting his age. We're not trying to de-age this person and make it seem like, again, he's late 20s. This is a dude who's, however however old he is, he's in his 70s at least. You know, here's a guy who's who's lived. Here's a guy who every line on his face has been earned. And yet he still wants more because he's not content just to have what he's got, which he's really lucky to have. He's looking for ways to get more. And that requires not just brute force and a gun, that requires a certain level of duplicitous charm. Like that character, it's still a very surface level character. There's no question that like, he's got despicable plans and he's kind of just telling you straight to your face. All of his despicable plans is that everybody else is cool enough to go along with it or maybe just not sharp enough to pick it up. But it's like well, no, but so he tells great. the plans, he tells the plans to Burkhart and he tells the plans to us. Cause we're in, we're privy to that conversation, but outwardly, like when he's sitting yeah, yeah. at like, you know, when he's sitting at like the, the you know, what, what's essentially like a town hall type meeting amongst the, the native peoples, he is outwardly saying like, I'm on your side, oh, of I'm course. offering a reward. But I mean, yeah, that's yeah. like he, you know, and like they're, they're not dumb. You know, they, they, they can, they're, they're trusting him because this is the word that he is saying. And they believe that a person like this, a part of their community for however long is a person of his word. And, yeah. you know, he can't be slimy about doing it. So it's like, this is some real two-faced shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it was good. Let's take a moment to talk about Robbie Robertson. Because oh, Robbie Robertson. Robbie Robertson did the music and the, oh, Robbie Robertson. The, yeah, he, he did some of the original score, but then he also, I think the credit was music producer or something, like, I'm sure was involved in getting some of the uh, archival material to place. Because that's the thing, like, it's still a Scorsese movie. It has less music than his, than the wallpaper is normally, his movies normally would, but it still has a significant amount of, like, 
wallpaper tracks throughout of, of, of modern or, you know, contemporaneous music of the era. And also just like these really cool Robbie Robertson riffs. It's like this, this slide guitar, this harmonica. You think Robbie Robertson, perhaps you, you think of that noise that I'm talking about. I didn't anticipate his uh, contributions to feel so foregrounded, particularly in the first 30 minutes. Now, maybe they did just because I know Robbie Robinson did the music of this movie. He just passed away. They were really tight. Him and uh, Marty, there was like a, a period in their life where they just holed up in a mansion and kind of did cocaine during their, their worst <laughs> periods. And right. it was like formative. It's like, oh, that's, that's a romantic edge to that. Um, but yeah, like I, I didn't think that right away the first thing that would grab me and pull me along would be that music, but then also just imagining what it would have been like for him making that music and contributing it to those moments because there is some of his like guitarzy, bluesy Robbie Robertson stuff, but then there also seems to be the elements that he's weaving in from uh native music or from drums and the percussion um and from some like very era appropriate blues too yeah right like he's he's got a lot like i mean scorsese has always been really really fascinated with blues he had that great documentary series yeah, several yeah. years ago um which i kind of feel was criminally underseen i'd go so far as to say this is one of the best scorsese soundtracks in a minute mm. um because uh again the, this is where the rhythm felt right you know, like uh, Scorsese sometimes can have those real weird, wild needle drops that kind of seem out of nowhere. And I'm thinking about stuff mm. like, you know, the way he drops the Foo Fighters into the middle of Wolf of Wall Street, um, right. you know, while, while they're on a yacht and just the music in Wall Street is kind of going like very, very balls to the wall kind of playlist on shuffle type soundtrack a lot of like constantly yeah, yeah. on skip mode hey there um, was no gimme shelter in this there was no gimme shelter thank <laughs> you thank you um and even the way that robertson approaches the music where it's got a modern tilt to it it's not all 1920s appropriate but it does it in a much more appropriate way um we were talking last week when we were mapping out this episode we were talking about um gangs of new york which mm. i like and it, that is a movie that's even much messier than this but I, I like that movie a lot for what it is that movie the soundtrack there feels wrong because it's got mm. this very very modern slant on the guitar music while the gangs are fighting mm. and i'm like this does not seem right for this in this movie the modern tilt on the blues uh soundtrack it's all just it fits it so well it's beautiful yeah thank yeah. you for reminding me of that i do remember also thinking, I guess like, um, american south it makes sense that yeah it would be uh that region and I mean, that's a movie where I felt like the soundtrack was aligned with my heartbeat very well. The story, the pace, everything else, not so much. The soundtrack, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we, we touched on it earlier, and I do want to come back to it because it's something that I am wrestling with. Uh, and, you know, if you are avoiding spoilers of this movie, turn back now. You touched upon the ending of this film. And the ending of this film is we jump from... Um, Burkhart and Molly having their kind of final farewell yeah. out in the field. The story gets resolved. There's, the story yeah. gets resolved and we've got this coda uh, that is framed in a live radio 
true crime series that actually did, did take place. Yep. Um, you know, kind of the 1950s version of a true crime podcast um, where we, we hear where, what happened to everybody next. You know, it's, it's the audio, it's the performance and audio version of, and then Burkhart served his crime and then Molly lived for 50 yeah, years. Like closing titles. Yeah. But you know, performed for us uh you know cinema of the mind and scorsese has the final word when he reads molly's obituary aloud i don't think that worked for me Mm. as this ending note um it felt like a departure i do understand i was reading something this morning on indiewire that talks about how it's a little bit more complicated than i gave it credit for it didn't sit with me in the moment, and I'm having trouble with it. Now, you say it worked hmm. for you. It did, but I mean, I be, because it is a it is a daring step away from the style of the movie. So, yes, ultimately, when it happens, you're going to be like, what was that? And have to, I don't know, think about it. I don't want to say wrestle with it. It's not that challenging. But, yeah, like when it's, it's like, what was up with that? And then, yeah, I, I kind of had to think about it for a while. How do I feel about that? Do I wish they did something different? Blah, blah, blah. But, um, but yeah, because I'd say on a surface level, you would just look at that kind of how you've described it. It's like, oh, well, instead of having the, the typical end credit cards that explain what happened to all these characters after the back of the movie, let's actually have it performed in the movie. And, and that, just is enough of a of a change up of things to be oh isn't that interesting but to be clear i'm not crazy about that no no no, just like don't i actually i i actually don't like that i actually don't like those those like (laughs) you know fast times at richmond high and then this happened oh yeah it's like stop the story i don't care what happened like after five minutes after the story the whole world could have exploded well that's it had, but it has to. That's the thing. The information has to be judiciously used, right? Like if right. it's just like, and then, and then he went to Vietnam and was fragged by his own troops. It's like, well, that gives me nothing to this actual story. But if right. it says like, you know, ten years later they met each other on the street and this happened, like you know, like if there's something where oh that actually would add to the story versus yeah. oh yeah they became mayor, like that's that's of no interest. Like that's sort of right. there telling that story. This is the way people would have gotten the, the story of the Osage murders um, or Osage murders back then um, through a form of radio, which would have been coming to them through these white actors doing this radio program. They are kind of explaining where the story goes, but they're also doing it in a, a, a very shortened, almost offhand kind of way. And then when um, Scorsese comes up and, and gives himself that final moment and uh, he reads Molly Burkhardt's real-life obituary and acknowledges there is no mention in the obituary about these murders that had happened. Even that required a little bit of, of, of grappling for me for a little while because it's sort of like, oh, well, what is the movie even trying to say about that? Did she have any say in how her obituary was being um, uh, released. Like, was it her call to not mention these horrible murders of her family in her obituary because she has that dignity? Or 
is the fact that these murders are not mentioned in their obituary more indicative of the fact that it is a white press that was burying these things in the same way that De Niro was sort of like, you know, no one's going to care about this as soon as they forget that it ever happened, which I think was just a couple scenes prior to that. So then, you know, that you're even left with that question of, well, well, was the not acknowledging these murders, was that a form of, of her reclaiming her story or is that indicative of the way that this story's been uh, steamrolled and buried? Like, it left you with enough to think about that, that I thought it was effective, but ultimately I think it's the, the latter. I, I think the point is, look at, this is how we got this information across, this is now just continuing the, um, the problem, and to have Scorsese be the final person up there saying it and explaining it is in a way saying like, hey, yeah, here I am, I'm famous film director Martin Scorsese, I have also contributed in making movies that maybe blur the line between uh, reality and, and um, fantasy, and just kind of leaving it at that. It's jarring to say, no, to like whether sure. it works or whether it doesn't work, you know, it, I is a hard, it is a hard left at the last minute. I thought it just as jarring as when Brendan Fraser showed up, to be honest. Oh my, God, thought, oh my God, Brendan Fraser. But it's that sort of thing. Like, <laughs> my, I, was, I was more willing to think that the jar had to do with either the jump in time or, yes, yeah, suddenly like, hey, what's Larry Fessenden doing there on this radio show? Like all those little things that jumped into my mind. This, on the other hand, is a hard sword. Like, you know, I've been we've been in this world now. And I mean, even even Brendan Fraser's lawyer is part of this world. Some of those like a lot of those townsfolk were various versions of that character, whether it was. The Undertaker being like, I don't know why that happened, or whether it was the the trustee being like, I don't know why your mother's spending three hundred dollars on meat. Maybe you should look into that. You know, like a lot of those characters were versions of the Brendan Fraser guy, of the Brendan Fraser lawyer. You know, acting that very folksy, old timey way that Brendan Fraser, by direction, let us be clear, drummed up to eleven and just came off kind of strange. This, on the other hand, is a hard swerve somewhere we have not been for three and a half hours. You know, we're, we, he, I'm surprised that he didn't push it even further and make it a murder podcast because it's like really and truly <laughs> that feels like this. it would have worked just as well as this did is we are consuming atrocity for entertainment and amusement and interest when it was people's lives. Like that is a whole other thing yeah. that i think we're still kind of wrestling with but okay if it yeah. had been something like a podcast then yeah. i think the implication would be because here we are in the more enlightened now where we can properly look at these things and attribute guilt the way they were supposed but that to was, like, but, no but that was the point in the no, 50s no, too it was like no. look we're, we're 30 years removed from this stuff we know better now but we know that they didn't know then and are right just and in 30 years when somebody is presumably listening to this they talk about how you and i also did not know well okay sure know. but this is part of the movie it's like right. no no like i think the part of the movie is like here look at us aren't we so good because we are telling this story right applause applause praise 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 okay. we're still kind of not telling you everything and in right. fact we're still hiding stuff and in and we're still white people here in front of a 
ad for Pall Mall smokes or whatever the ad was there, like the soap company, like yeah. they are clearly just doing this for money and right. for entertainment. It's like, yeah, but something like a podcast, I think at least at this time, it feels more like, well, no, these are, these are actually socially social warriors who, who, yeah. are, who have finally found the real story. Whereas this movie is sort of like, yeah, but we're kind of burying the real story. Okay. Let's just move on. But sure. So, so I mean, so like, but just that in its own hard swerve, kind of, kind of weird. But then we ultimately get this, the, the point of the hard swerve, which is we didn't tell you everything. We told it from a limited point of view. We missed some stuff because we didn't know, or we chose not to, or what have you, but here it is. And I don't know if that is raising a hand and copping guilt and moving on an admission of, you know, failing an admission of limitation, not just of this film and of the three hours and some that we'd gone through, but his whole career. I don't know where this lands for me, you know, whether it's, a genuine declaration of I have tried to do what I was here to do. And I don't know if I did it as well as I did, but I did it. Or if it's, it comes up short. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, and I yeah. And that's the thing. I think it's, I think that that ending is going to play differently for everybody, which in itself is interesting because it could have just ended when Molly absolutely. and Burkhart had their moment, but to tack this on, um, is you know it's it's a it's a bold move and i don't know if you know bold moves don't always pay off mm. we, you know we could be here talking about this movie forever and i mean that that's the thing is that even though i'm saying it has flaw i'm still saying that it is really good that it is you know astounding performance craft writing that sometimes you know like flaw comes with pure audacity even right down you know even right down to the last scene that i'm talking about i'm having trouble it, it i'm having trouble with it because it was a ballsy move mm -hmm. you know I, I i i will hang on to that um but we could be talking about it until rapture um we move at the end of every uh review here on the matinee cast to a souvenir something tangible or intangible if you could take away from this movie and keep you would um, Michael Lane, what would be your souvenir from Killers of the Flower Moon? Hmm. Um, I think the the part that that is echoing with me right now, or that I was feeling the most appreciation for yesterday when I saw it, was uh, as discussed the the Robbie Robertson score. Uh, the feeling I want of, a copy of that. The feeling of Robbie's ghost. If yeah. I dare say, yeah. like, because obviously yeah. the man would have been alive when he did this. I, I, yeah. I hope that maybe he was in Cannes for the premiere and and you know actually saw it and, and got some of the response to it. But it's like I I did not anticipate the background music reminding me of the presence of this artist, but also what it would have meant for them to be contributing to this story. I, or, or just, yeah. It's like, that was sort of like, yeah. So, so the fact that I, I didn't expect that and I got a little bit of that and that's kind of what, what pulled me into those first, let's say 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. I'm with that, you. That, that's I, I that's really, kind of where I'm sticking for now. I really hope that there's a, a lovely vinyl version of this soundtrack that gets pressed. Uh, <laughs> you know, Mondo, I'm looking at you. Um, my souvenir is I actually want to hang out in that pool hall. You know, I want to like, oh, I want to yeah, get, yeah. get a shave. I want to have a drink. I oh want to, 
yeah, Jack Fisk's production design across the board. Oh yeah, just, yeah. This movie looks oh, amazing. Like, yeah, it's just lived every yeah, real. very, very, very lived in, very weathered. Like, no detail is is uh, is left to chance. Um, I love you know, love the pool hall. Love like the windows oh. of it. Love that you know the, the friggin' barber chair is kind of in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like well, you're, you're worried you're gonna get a pool cue to the back of the head, <laughs> and it will be like it will be some extraordinarily lush production design, some space that your eye just wants to creep over every little detail in the space. But then over here is where we have um, blankets that are more indicative of the native culture like mm -hmm. there's there's all the more you're looking at all these little details the more you see the details which have become intermingled with one another yeah. um but but the way that they stand out or the way that they're there it feels both natural and also like an invasive species we end every matinee cast on uh, by rating the film on a scale of one to four stars mike lane i know you don't like to rate films but you're gonna That's true, uh, killers of the flower moon what do we got I would probably put this as a four. Now, I've been seeing a couple other people having thoughts where it's like, this is a movie that's going to improve or get different on a second viewing. Well, I don't I mean, know that it will. I think it will still be great. I don't know that I, I don't know that there's any shock or surprise that's going to, or that will make me reconfigure my experience of the three and a half hours having watched it. As I, opposed to we shut our see, eyes. I mean, it's funny because I'm, I'm on like a, I'm on a three. Um, really. Uh, and, and I actually do think that when I have more time to sit with it and when I watch it a few more times, like a few of those things I'll be willing to forgive and kind of bump it up Absolutely, a wee bit yeah. to like a three and a half, but I'm never going to get to a four on this thing mm -hmm. because when I compare it to Raging Bull and Goodfellas and Taxi Driver and those kind of movies and ones that I consider personal masterpieces like Silence, um, you know, I, it's never going to get there because it has just yeah, too many yeah. flaws. And I mean, the cool thing about Scorsese is he his films are often flawed, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But it's like you're again you're competing against yourself. Sometimes your indulgences are the cause of these flaws. I'm at a three. I would reckon that over time I'm going to come up a little bit but I'm not going to come up to four. I can totally see why it does that for you. I'm a little cooler on it. Hey, maybe people are somewhere in between. Maybe you think that it's you know better than I say, but not as good as Mike says. Maybe you think it's a trash fire. Maybe you think it is a masterpiece. Let me know what you think. Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter on matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee What do you think of Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon? That's we a trash gonna... fire! <laughs> we are going to take a very quick break here and come back with some more movies, so come on back right after this. We're back. It's episode 313 of the Matinee Cast. He's Michael Lane. I'm Ryan McNeil. We've been talking about Killers of the Flower Moon, the latest film from Martin Scorsese, a um, man who's been making films for almost 60 years now. Uh, it's the other side. It's the time of the podcast where we talk about other movies that this movie made us think of, um, other suggestions where you could go after your, uh, your three or four birthdays in the theater watching this movie. 
why don't you get us started? Apparently you came back with a few uh, selections. What, what are one or two movies that you thought about coming away from Killers of the Flower Moon and, uh, and why? On a general superficial level, I mean, you're watching a Scorsese movie and you're watching one of the bajillion Scorsese movies with Leonardo DiCaprio in it. Um, I did find myself yeah, uh, thinking of Gangs of New York because of the epic length. I actually found myself going off of Scorsese movies and thinking of DiCaprio in his FBI context as uh, J. Edgar Hoover in the Clint Eastwood uh, J. Edgar. Also, we did a podcast about that. Not not yeah. we, you and I, but there is a matinee cast about that with McNally. <laughs> and I genuinely thought it was going to be good. <laughs> the, I remember the makeup being a little macabre uh, but also uh, right around that same or just before J. Edgar actually a couple years before uh, Eastwood did a different movie uh, based on like a real crime around 1920s 1930s and it was Changeling with Angelina Jolie um, yeah. I realized as I was watching this movie it's like I remembered none of it but the fact that it involved uh, on the outside uh, an FBI investigation, the early days of the FBI, and like, you know, flapper hats. I was momentarily <laughs> thinking of like uh, Changeling. But actually, the, the I'd say the two that I want to talk to, um, one pairs in with Scorsese and the other one doesn't. So I'll, I'll do the other one that doesn't first. Uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. This oh, might yeah. just be because we were talking about Bogart earlier and I was... Sure getting all into the the Acme bookstore proprietors. But uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre as a movie that is about um, the lust for gold and the greed for money uh, being a corrosive effect um, that just destroys all of these best laid plans of these poor guys. I'd say like Treasure of the Sierra Madre would be a pretty good one. And then dovetailing from Scorsese, but into something else entirely. The, the, the thing that came out of this movie was this idea of a family unit, a, a, a home structure that gets invaded by uh, an outside corrupting force. Uh, it would be the, um, Molly's family in this movie. They get invaded by this corrupting force that is the, all the white people. And right. then they, in turn, have their switch when their world gets invaded by the, the FBI agents towards the end. Um, Scorsese-wise, it made me think of something like a Cape Fear, because Cape Fear, you have a family movement that's being attacked in from an invasive element on the inside, and significantly, the original Cape Fear did not have the family dynamic being as uh, combative mm. and 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 being as torn to shreds as the Scorsese uh, version did. That's so, yeah, I mean those would those would make a really really great uh, film series out of Cinematheque, uh, you know, in, in in honor of this film rather than just doing the obvious let's show a bunch of Scorsese movies or let's show a bunch of DiCaprio movies. It's like, let's pick some films with similar themes. Yeah, or historical um, epics, right? Yeah, like, yeah, no, like, I love that. Maybe uh, How the West Was Won. It's like, well, right. I haven't seen How the West Was Won, so I can't really say it, but yeah. I kind of want to watch How the West Was Won right now. Um, I mean, so one that my brain went to going in, and I was actually surprised how drastically different the two films actually are because it really seemed like they would be a match set but they're really not is going in i thought that a good pairing would be there will be blood um mm. but it's 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 actually this film is much more it sounds strange to say this much more restrained than there will be blood which really yeah. wants to be epic in its scale in its scope uh you know it wants to back up and show off 
those Texas oil fields show off that opulence of Plainview and his life and the, the, the greed that he amasses. Um, Scorsese wants to bring us into the rooms and into the community and into the, the tents of, of, uh, of Fairfax. Um, so it's, it's actually, while they both have oil and greed and malice as a thematic through line, they both take very different approaches in the terms of cinematic language, which I thought on the surface, I'm like, oh, this is going to be his, there will be blood. It's really not. It's, it's actually kind of funny because he's at, he doesn't really show off the landscape all that often, which I mean, he, it's not really his move in general um, to, to really pull the camera back and show off the world that he's in. He's much more interested in being in the apartments, in the offices, those kinds of conversations than he is showing off the Vegas strip or showing off the, the Japanese countryside or whatever. Yeah. I mean, Um, the suggestion might be that Oklahoma is nothing to look at. (laughs) <laughs> no, but I bet, no, true. But when you get Scorsese and his photographers there, they will find a way to make it interesting. The one, you know, we tipped it off a little bit earlier on. But my 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 actual other side for this movie um, is a story called Certain Women by um, Kelly Reichardt, uh, the director of um, films like Wendy and Lucy and Old Joy and. Um, she did First Cow First as well. First Cow, right? which I love. You know, you were asking me earlier on this week about like pandemic era movies that are incredible. And First Cow is one of those for sure. Certain Women is from 2016 by Kelly Reichardt. Um, this one is set in, I want to say it's set in Montana. Um, and it's one modern? of these. Is very modern? modern. Yep, okay. yep, 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 yep. It's very, it's one of these films where the narratives overlap, but not in a wild and trippy um, Magnolia kind of way, in a much more just all of these people happen to be in the same town and their their stories kind of drift into one each other in a tangential sort of way. Um, and one of the three main narratives of this story involves Lily Gladstone and uh, Kristen Stewart. Um, and we watch their interactions. Gladstone in that movie is much more timid. She's much more curious. She's younger. Like this is seven years ago now um, that this movie you know, that this movie took place. So you know a lot of life experience in that time. And, and playing somebody much younger, playing somebody you know who's not as um, independent, somebody who's certainly not as rich. Um, but just watching the way that she plays these two characters and embodies these two sides of herself, um, it's really, really lovely to see. And it was it was the kind of performance where I'm like, well, uh, you know, I really enjoyed what she brought to this movie and what she was doing opposite Kristen Stewart. I don't know if we're going to ever see her again because she's, you know, not a name. And this may be a springboard or it may not because I don't know how many people are going to go see certain women. Um, but it's, it's a really lovely story. It does a whole bunch of different things. All of the quote unquote, certain women in this movie are having different things going on in their lives. And we understand how they affect each other kind of tangentially. Um, and it's, it's, it's really, um, just a wonderful little film brisk. It's less than two hours. You've got these narratives and just, even just watching her, there's a great, scene where she sits at a diner with um Kristen Stewart and they're and they're just talking and there's a dynamic going on there that I don't really want to kind of 
give away. Um, it's a it's it's a great movie that I kind of hope a lot of people will go back and find nice. now that uh, now that we're in a uh, you know in a in a Lily Gladstone world. Um, you said you had a few more. What else you got to go along with this movie? I mean, I think I kind of blurred through them just in my my setup. There, it was like you know the DiCaprio, the J. Edgar, the Changeling, the the Eastwood stuff, and that's again totally superficial. It's just because of the the era or the fact that I mean, had they continued making this movie with DiCaprio as the FBI agent, then he would have been in a circumstance where he's like, well, in one movie I played J. Edgar Hoover, and in another movie I played the guy working as a subservient to J. Edgar Hoover. And then, yeah, and, and even Gangs in New York, like I said, totally superficial. It's just because it's long, just because it's another Marty movie, just because it's kind of on my brain. But, you know, another movie about uh, America's founding myths uh, I mean, and, and how they relate to uh, race relations. I think why that actually is an interesting pairing is that is a movie that is very messy, um, that was historically actually in terms of its production quite combative um with yeah, yeah. B- between him and um harvey weinstein was the producer of that film because that was a miramax film and you know we can say what we want to say about harvey weinstein as an individual but as a as a filmmaker he was notorious for like getting That's- far too into some of the films d- despite having no real actual reason to be there you know, like it's not like he came from a film background himself. He was just a business person. He really had no artistic input. And I mean, we can say this about a lot of producers. They have no artistic expertise that they should be having these artistic, uh, you know, say. Um, but the funny thing is we have this <laughs> fracas going on with Scorsese on one side and Weinstein on the other side. The film misses at least two release dates uh that i that i know of off the top of my head because it was originally supposed to come out in 99 and ultimately what we get is still a mess and and on top of that the fact that scorsese has wanted to make this movie for his whole career he was talking about it back in the 70s as a movie that he wanted to do following uh taxi driver it was the one that he wanted to do next instead of new york new york and then ultimately um reaching bolt and I think De Niro was actually one of the people who he wanted to be in it. Um, so it's a film that he's wanted to make for like 20 years. He finally gets to make it. His producer is not somebody who just signs the checks and says, okay, do what you want to do, like most of the producers he works with now do. Um, and what we ultimately get is still so messy. So I've been thinking a lot about Gangs of New York lately. I had fully intended to actually revisit it over the last two weeks. I have not. So um, my any statements on its sloppiness or lack of sloppiness are based off the last time I watched it, which was possibly when it was in theaters. Oh, man. I've I've come back to it a bunch of times. But I saw it like, well, I've always wanted to. I just never have. But I saw it, I want to say, three times during its theatrical release, maybe four. I... Definitely thought it was messy, but did not feel that the messiness was a sloppiness. I actually thought that the messiness gave it life. Uh, I thought that the messiness meant that it was not as structured or as uh, um, controlled, as as calibrated as every other movie that I was seeing at the time. It, it felt mildly um alive so i was very pro gangs in new york okay my my thoughts of my thoughts of messiness of this film come down to structure 
you know, in terms of the actual narrative, it's all over the map in terms of what it wants to do, how it goes about doing it. It comes from a really, really thick book. In the run-up to Killers of the Flower Moon, I was joking that I read the book faster than three and a half hours. And it, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm over, I'm embellishing a little bit, but it was close. Yeah. Um, this book is not that. This book was like really, really thick. Got into a whole lot of shit that they had to whittle down to this core narrative of you know, them versus us and who these gangs were and whatnot. But even just within that whittling, I'm like, you needed to go further because you're still a little too all over the place with this. You've got a love story that's not working. You've got a a betrayal that's not all that betraying. Give it another pass. So it's, it's, it's wild to watch it now. Technique wise, it's amazing. And, and just with it from moment to moment, it's stunning. But when backed up and looking at it on the whole, and even comparing it to what Scorsese would do after, um, you know, because a lot of a lot of artists that we love, as they get into their later career, their work can kind of taper off. It's like, no, no, this is not a guy who tapered off. He still kept cranking out bangers well into his career after this. This was just a moment where there needed to be a firmer hand on the wheel. I will say the move to Daniel Day-Lewis is an improvement. I don't think that, Oh, yeah, would have yeah. pulled that off as well. As no, he would have just been a bulking uh, yeah. uh, uh, threat, Brute. really. But yeah. but yeah, but yeah, Daniel Day Lewis, you kind of don't want to take your eyes off him because he might just lunge at you from the side <laughs> of the screen. Well, you'll have to tell me how that goes next time we get together to, for beer. And that yeah, yeah. is episode 313 of the Matinee Cast. I'm so grateful that Mike Lane was able to come by. 313. Come it's a, 313. It goes I know. the same frontwards and backwards. I'm, I, I always get a thrill when we get to those. Uh, I, I got to wait 10 more episodes for 323 for it to, to happen again. Come on back on Monday, November 6th for episode 314. We will be discussing The Killer, the new film from David Fincher. Ooh. It's going to show up on Netflix uh, later on this winter. Um, I'd tell you where to follow. Mike, but he's a curmudgeon who is not at all on social media. And you know nope. what, buddy? I, I think you're very well ahead of the curve because these days that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My site, though, is thematinee.ca. You can find back episodes there. You can also find them on all the usual places Apple, Spotify, Google, you know, anywhere that podcasts are found, I'm there. If you, my podcast is not there, let me know. I'll put it there. You can get alerts for free and listen when new episodes drop. Feedback on Killers of the Flower Moon can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email me, ryan at the matinee.ca. On Twitter, I'm still there, matinee underscore CA. And there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Mike, any final thoughts? No. <laughs> awesome i'm gonna get to work on editing this and maybe i'll get it out by next week for mike i'm ryan we'll see you at the matinee